0: Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. As the world wrestles with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's clear that much depends on our ability to vaccinate a large proportion of the population. Like all medications, vaccines have their side effects, and the most notable at present is an unusual syndrome of intravascular clotting associated with thrombocytopenia. Joining me to discuss this issue is Dr Tim Brighton, Tim is a consultant hematologist in New South Wales Health and a participant in a recent working party that has developed guidelines for the detection and management of this important condition known as vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VIT. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Todd. Thank you. Tim, what's the current understanding of the pathological mechanisms behind VIT? I think
1: this is a disease or a syndrome, if you like, we don't really understand particularly well. So what's happening here is we're seeing an unusual development of this VIT syndrome after vaccination. So this is an immune response to the, the COVID vaccinations. So we do see secondary immune problems after all vaccinations. They're not Unheard of, even with the flu vaccine. But they're very uncommon. So we see, you know, autoimmune thrombocytopenia. We see Guillain-Barre. We see other secondary immune phenomena. So what's happening in this Vit syndrome, or what we think is happening, is that there's a very pronounced secondary immune response. Um, in that immune response, there is an immune reaction with blood platelets, and the the immune complexes that form actually bind to the surface of the platelet, causing thrombocytopenia because the platelets are cleared from the circulation, but as well in some patients a strong stimulation or activation of the platelets. And so we see this uh, development of a very um, pro-thrombotic state with the development of blood clots, but as well significant thrombocytopenia. So that, that I guess, is what has been described in VIT. But, you know, I think it is unlikely that that's the only pathophysiology here. It's likely that there is actually significant activation of the endothelium, of, of complement perhaps, of other leukocytes, and so, you know, we don't have a good understanding really of this particular problem, I don't think.
0: Tim, there's been some suggestion that it resembles at least in some of its mechanisms the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. In what ways does it share characteristics with that? Yes, so there's a number of players, I guess, in this the vit
1: process and the hit process, which seem to be similar, so um, anti, um, so platelet factor four or PF four, seems to be very important in terms of being part of the immune complex, and so the antibodies in HIT are directed towards the heparin and PF four complex, um, and so the immune complex in HIT is an antibody against the PF4 bound to heparin, uh, and that immune complex then deposits on, on the platelets to activate the FC-Gamma R2 receptor, which causes strong platelet activation. And so there's a, a lot of similarity, it would appear, with the VIT process. So in the VIT process, we're getting the formation again of antibodies against PFL complex, And it may be that in that complex there are components of the vaccine or of COVID virus particles that have been induced by the vaccine. In any case, PF4, antibodies against this PF4 complex seem to be important. Um, and, And again, that immune complex deposits on the platelet Uh, and activates the platelets through this FC gamma R2 receptor. So we don't really know what the components of that immune complex are in VIT. It's not heparin-dependent, so you don't need to have heparin exposure. Um, And, of course, the role of heparin as an anticoagulant we'll probably discuss, but it's a little bit controversial and generally avoided just because of the similarity between these two disease processes.
0: Tim, yeah. as we're going through this pandemic, obviously we're learning more and more about the virus itself, but also about the effects of the vaccine. There's yeah. obviously a lot of conjecture about vaccines and their risks of VIT in particular. What do yeah. we currently understand about the incidence of VIT and its risk factors?
1: Yeah, so very good questions, and, and we don't have good answers for some of these questions. So in terms of risk factors for developing this uh, apparent immune response um, to COVID vaccination, really, we don't have any patient risk factors that we know of. Um, of course, it only occurs with certain types of vaccines. So in Australia, We're only seeing this with the AstraZeneca vaccine, adenovirus vaccine, and we're not seeing this with the Pfizer vaccine. Um, And this particular syndrome has been reported with other vaccines overseas that are similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, you know, we don't really have anything to help us um, say to patients, look, I don't think you should have this vaccine or that vaccine. It, It doesn't there don't seem to be any patient risk factors that um, tell us how to manage that. Perhaps the only patient risk factor is age. And so in terms of the, the prevalence of vit, of it seems to be much more prevalent in younger people who receive the AstraZeneca vaccine compared to older people. And this has been managed in different countries around the world in, in different ways. So in Australia, um, you know, we started off vaccinating um, adults of all ranges, age ranges, but in in higher risk groups, Um, and then that was quickly changed to to, um, only using Pfizer less than 50 and then subsequently changed to less than 60. And then, of course, the lack of supply you know these arguments are being massaged continually but but there's no doubt that that the risks are higher in in people who are younger perhaps the the best estimates of risk come from the UK data where they've given over 30 million AstraZeneca vaccines i think it's looking like for people under 40 it's about a 1 in 40,000 risk of getting vit uh, whereas when you look at a population of people who are 60 or over, it's actually really uncommon, probably, well, it's hard to actually guess, maybe maybe less than one in 200,000. It's hard to know. And overall, we're looking in Australia at about a one in 80,000 chance of getting vit after a first dose of AstraZeneca.
0: What are the common presentations of this that we are currently aware of? And what are some of the less common presentations that clinicians like myself would need to keep an eye out for? So, look,
1: the original publications on this syndrome suggested a very high rate of developing unusual thrombosis. And so these were looking at the younger age group, um, particularly young women, you know, less than 40. Uh, they were they were being diagnosed with you know cerebral venous sinus thrombosis uh, or splenic thrombosis. So splenic, as in uh, I guess portal vein, splenic vein, uh, you know, intra- mesenteric vein, intra-abdominal thrombosis. And so these are unusual types of venous thrombosis. Um, You know, they comprise a very small percentage of all of the vein vein thrombosis that we generally see. Um, So we should talk about those two in particular because they're really worrisome presentations and they have a, a very significant morbidity and mortality that we should discuss. Just to get back to the question a little more broadly, though. So, in Australia, because we've been vaccinating much older populations, really, than perhaps has been done overseas, particularly the UK, we are seeing a different spectrum of, I guess, thrombosis presentations. So, certainly, we're seeing these, the cerebral, you know, venous sinus thrombosis, we're seeing splenic thrombosis in the younger population. But because a lot of our vaccinated population are much older um, you know often over 60 or in their 70s you know we're actually seeing arterial thrombosis and we're seeing you know leg deep venous thrombosis pulmonary embolism but with a much higher sort of thrombotic burden than than perhaps we would often see so we we do see a spectrum of um, types of thrombosis but the worrisome ones really are are uh, the cerebral venous sinus and the splenic thrombosis because you know the presentations are not necessarily um, easily recognised and unless you think of that diagnosis, you know you're not going to find it and if the diagnosis is delayed, then um, the
0: outcome can be disastrous. Now you mentioned that they can be difficult to detect and you need to be thinking about these diagnoses. What are the sort of features other than the obvious, which is that they've recently been exposed to an AstraZeneca or a similar vaccine? What are the sort of clinical features that should alarm you? So, look, I think um, with cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, the,
1: the commoner symptom is headache. And so the pattern of headache is important to recognise, So it's, you know, it's a headache that is happening, um, you know, four or more days after the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The headache is not a mild headache. It's a severe headache. It's an all day headache. People wake up with it. Um, It's unrelenting and progressive. And so headache is the commonest symptom. And the problem is headaches are common symptom and often dismissed, um, particularly in the absence of other findings. But you know, I think a headache in the right time frame after first dose of AstraZeneca vaccine really needs someone to think, oh, could this be the first indication of a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis? Because if you don't think of the diagnosis and you don't do any testing to look for that diagnosis or exclude that diagnosis, then the diagnosis will get missed. Similarly, with splanchnic thrombosis, you know, the commonest presentation is just abdominal pain. And of course, abdominal pains an incredibly common symptom for all sorts of reasons, um, and but that may be it. It may just be abdominal pain or cramps or you know other sort of non-specific sort of abdominal symptoms um, at, in the right time frame. And again, the question has to be has to be asked. So the recognition of a recent vaccination, and and then asking that that question: Could this be? a vaccine
0: associated problem, that that question has to be asked and appropriate testing done. Um, Obviously, these types of thrombotic presentations can occur for other reasons. How do you tie them back to uh, the vaccine? Is there a diagnostic test or set of diagnostic criteria that we should use to diagnose VIT?
1: So this is a really tricky question because there is no consensus definition of what VIT is. And as, as everyone will be aware, you know, it's called a variety of things. It's called VIPIT, VIT, TTS, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, I think, you know, probably thinking of it of it as a syndrome of low platelets and thrombosis is is the best way to think of it. Um, it's difficult to really prove that it's vaccine associated, except with the, the temporal relationship you know of recent vaccination um you know we as a hematologist we see a lot of vein thrombosis it's actually very rare to see people with concurrent thrombosis and low platelets you know that is an unusual concordance of events and so again asking the question doing a blood count, seeing a low platelet count really has to raise alarm bells that maybe this is vaccine-associated. But, yes, of course, um, you know, cerebral sinus, you know, venous sinus thrombosis, splenic thrombosis happen for all sorts of other reasons. And, you know, to to be 100% sure it's vaccine caused by vaccination or vaccine-related
0: is actually quite tricky, quite tricky. One of the questions that does come up from time to time is what to do about the patient who you suspect has VIT but doesn't have thrombocytopenia. How important is a low platelet count to the diagnosis?
1: I think the low platelet count is very important for the diagnosis. Um, In the Australian experience to date, we have seen not uncommonly a a normal platelet count at presentation, um, but often in those people you know, during their evaluation or during subsequent testing, you know they have developed thrombocytopenia, but there have been some cases where you know the platelet count has not dropped. Um, so, I think having a normal plate doesn't normal platelet count doesn't exclude the diagnosis; it makes it less likely. But if there's a strong clinical suspicion that it still might be, for example, a vaccine associated cerebral you know venous sinus thrombosis then I think you need to to do other you need to do all the testing to to, to seek that diagnosis and it may be that the platelet count will fall um, given time. Maybe if I could again draw a parallel to HIT. So not everyone with HIT has a low platelet count. And in fact um, it's a 50% drop in platelet count that is the determinant of the thrombocytopenia when we do a 4T score. So, you know, in biological sy- sy- systems like humans, you know, we're never going to have
0: black and white. It's always going to be shades of grey, yeah. And what other sorts of uh, lab tests that we should be thinking about as uh, in part of the diagnosis? Yes, yeah, so I think there's two broad groups of lab tests. So obviously
1: for people where we suspect they might have VIT or, or TTS, The most important tests up front are going to be a platelet count, uh, a D-dimer, and a fibrinogen. And so what we're finding in the the people with what we think is TTS, the platelet count is low, uh, or if initially normal, it drops quite quickly after presentation, we see a very elevated D-dimer. It's it's usually more than five times the upper limit of normal. Uh, sort of out of you know in a disproportionately high compared to what we think you know the symptoms or the amount of thrombosis might be and then in a a group of patients we also see uh, a low fibrinogen Uh, I guess again a consumptive sort of coagulopathy is a part of this prothrombotic syndrome so they're the really important tests to do and so you know when you suspect TTS, if the platelet count is low, the D-dimer is very high, you know, those patients really need imaging based on where you think, you know, your clinical clinical suspicion of thrombosis is and, and, and the imaging needs to be done very quickly and reported very quickly. Um, in terms of then trying to prove a diagnosis, if you like, um, uh, we have established a group of laboratories that are doing uh, testing for this immune complex or this, this anti-platelet factor 4 or PF4 complex. And there are two broad groups of assays. One is just uh, an antigenic or immunoassay looking for the antibodies, and the other types of assays are what we call functional assays where we're trying to demonstrate that there is an antibody or an immune complex that's directed against platelets and that's that's causing platelet activation. And so yep, we've been busy beavering away doing lots of tests in Australia. Um, we have a pretty well established pathway now of of uh accepting samples for the you know for the the PF4 antibody testing. Um, and um you know information about those that testing and what blood samples and where to send and all that sort of stuff is available on the
0: fans website. Now onto management and in particular anticoagulation, you mentioned before that there is a concern about using heparin in these patients. Could you explain why and what the other alternatives are for managing somebody who's got an acute thrombosis? Yep. So the management, of course, is something that
1: we're we're learning about. Um, so, so the concern with heparin is that the initial, I guess the initial reports of these cases and looking at their the laboratory testing in a number of cases, at least in vitro, um, the platelet ag- activation by the immune complex seemed to be uh, augmented in the presence of heparin, even though heparin wasn't important to the pathogenesis of the VIT syndrome. So I guess for that reason, um, heparin was generally avoided uh, with the early cases. Um, having said that, um, you know, an in vitro effect is very difficult to translate to an in vivo effect. But nevertheless, I think most people have been cautious in using using heparin, unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparins in this particular syndrome. And it may be that that changes with more experience and time, but at the moment, um, certainly caution. So that's a shame because heparin is a good anticoagulant. Um, and I guess in the context, particularly of splanchnic and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, where there is often associated infarction and hemorrhage um, and perhaps a need for intervention, surgical intervention, you know, using a reversible anticoagulant is rather rather attractive, <laughs> and heparin is reversible at least. Um, so, you know, for that serious thrombosis, we, we do need to use alternative anticoagulation. Probably the favoured anticoagulant approach in Australia, at least by haematologists in Australia, is to use a direct antithrombin, um, Rudin. Um, there are good protocols for using bivalirudin. It's monitored um, using you know clotting times. Uh, it's it rapidly turns off, um, and so it's a it's a good anticoagulant for for this particular context. For uh, sort of more conventional thrombosis, you know, extensive DVT or extensive PE, um, I think at the moment we're pretty comfortable if the patient is stable to use non-heparin anticoagulation. Um, doax, not inappropriate. Maybe maybe a couple of doses of, um, say, fondaparinux or a little bit of bivalirudin if you're really concerned that the patient's not clinically stable or needs thrombolysis. But I think very quickly we we would be happy to switch those patients onto sort of more conventional DOAC treatment. But I think it's the it's the serious thrombosis, the cerebral sinus and the splanchnics where I think we need to be up front with, you know, probably some rudin initially, and then once the patients are stabilised,
0: we would switch them on to um, a a DOAC-type approach longer term. In terms of other managements, is there anything that can be done to alter the immune process that's underlying this?
1: Yes, we've got a very... um, I think we we really believe in Australia, at least the haematology community, really believe in Australia that uh, intravenous immunoglobulin is very important to administer as soon as the diagnosis is made. Um, we think IVIG is not really, we're not just treating the thrombocytopenia here uh, because it's an immune, you know, secondary immune thrombocytopenia. It actually probably uh, or potentially certainly interferes with the the continual stimulation of the platelets by the immune complexes and probably, you know, attenuates the the prothrombotic sort of hypercoagulable state. Um, And so intravenous immunoglobulin up front is is really important. And so all the serious cases in Australia have generally had concurrent immunoglobulin, intravenous immunoglobulin, and also, you know, bivalium region as an anticoagulant. I think they're the the main thrusts of of the treatment and, you know, obviously these people need to be managed in an appropriate facility. Um, So, you know, cerebral venous sinus is a really serious problem. I mean, um, on initial presentation, you know, there often is infarction, you know, venous infarction, and there is often hemorrhage associated with that infarction. Um, but these people need anticoagulation. Um, you know, a proportion of these people actually need uh, decompressive surgery, and that's very important in reducing mortality from this condition. So they really need to be managed in a, an environment where there's specialist hematology input and neurosurgical input. Um, splenic thrombosis, similarly, you know, there is a lot of infarction and hemorrhage, and sometimes these people need operative intervention uh, for ischemic gut and complications, um, so again, you know, these these people need to be
0: managed in a in in an environment where all this treatment can be delivered. Tim, you were part of a um, working party that's put together some national guidelines. Can you tell us about yep. those guidelines? Yes. So um, the
1: Thrombosis Hemostasis Society of Australia and New Zealand has, um, you know, we we convened a sort of an advisory group at the end of. End of March, as we became aware of this particular problem, foreseeing that there would be some issues, and actually on the the first of April, April Fool's Day, the first Australian case was was um, was diagnosed. So Thans has a website, and there are a number of um, documents on the Thans website, um, including you know a guidance to clinicians on how to um, diagnose, manage, treat. Investigate um, people with suspected vit or, or TTS. Um, you know these these guidelines are not rocket science. They've been a, they're sensible and they've been adopted from other international sort of groups. Um, but we don't really know how to formally diagnose you know vit. We don't have a consensus definition. Um, we've been busy working away developing and doing laboratory investigations on these patients and it's clearly a very heterogeneous um, you know secondary immune response and we're not going to see the classic pattern in all the patients despite the fact that they present with low platelets and and really serious thrombosis
0: well, in broad brushstrokes, Tim, is there any areas of conjecture uh, internationally about how the diagnosis should be managed?
1: Um, this is a yeah, this is a rapidly evolving um, space. Um, I don't know if there's. Um, um, I guess I don't. I, I don't really know exactly how this will end up. Actually. Um, But I think, once again, I think it's going to be very important to get some sort of consensus approach. Um, It's going to be important, obviously, for individual patients and their management, Um, but it's very important in terms of public health and notification of adverse events of vaccines and vaccine development and registration. Um, We really need some sort of uh, established approach. And there's a number of groups Including Australian sort of haematology community that are working very hard to try and come up with a rational way to approach this um, this particular problem. But I think you know the patient management is the most important thing. We've been lucky in Australia that we've been a little bit ahead of everyone because everyone else's experience came to us before, if you like, we really started the vaccination in earnest. And so with I think early detection and awareness uh, and early intervention, we've been lucky that our mortality is, you know, still relatively low for patients with really serious thrombosis compared to the early international experience. Tim Bryden, thanks
0: very much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My OSLA wherever you get your apps or visit the website at oslacommunity.com.